0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the US politics and policy monthly web series co run by the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, and the Perth US Asia Center in Western Australia. Uh, my name Ashley Townsend I'm director of foreign policy and defense at the United States Study Center. And I'm delighted to have you all here with me virtually today for today's conversation. Uh, before we go any further. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia, the University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aurora nation and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you all are today and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future as well. Today for the web series we're doing something a little bit different um, and we're going to focus not on the domestic side of US politics, but instead we're going to go to the issue that is front and center of all of our thinking at the Perth Center and the US Study Center, which is the future of American policy in the Indo-Pacific and the Biden administration's Indo-Pacific strategy to date. I'm delighted for today's conversation uh, to have um, our regular partner in crime, uh, Professor Gordon Flake, CEO of the Perth Center. Gordon, thanks for being with me again today.
1: Delighted as always, thank you.
0: And uh, and of course, um, most importantly, our special guest for today's uh, discussion um, and the newest recruit to the US Study Center, Ambassador Jane Hardy, who has recently joined us as a visiting senior fellow in the foreign policy and defense program. Jane, thanks for being with us today.
2: Good day and uh, hello, everyone. I'm really pleased to be here.
0: And we're really pleased, Jane, to have you here For the listeners and watchers of this call, Jane is a senior career diplomat um, from the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade with three decades of experience in embassies and posts across the Indo-Pacific region, including in the United States. Uh, And most importantly, in some ways for today's conversation, she comes to us uh, most immediately from being the Consul General in Honolulu, which is the Australian um, diplomatic office that has direct engagement with and, and responsibility for liaison with U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, uh, the combatant command that is responsible for the part of the world that we're here to discuss today. So, Jane, we couldn't really have a, a better person uh, to, to speak with today on the call.
2: Thank um,
0: you. I thought, uh, actually, that this, is, this would be a really good place for us to start. Uh, Jane, yourself, having been, in Indo, well, having been in Honolulu and engaging with Indo-PACOM, uh, for the last uh four years um but also gordon and i being frequent are visitors both to camp smith which is the headquarters of indo-pacific command uh, and, and the hawaii-based think tanks i thought it might be a great place to start to reflect uh and to get your reflections a little bit on on how you see or how you saw the u.s australia alliance in action from your vantage point there in the middle really of the indo-pacific jane what did you take away uh, from that posting about America's role in the Indo-Pacific and the role of the US-Australia alliance, which is in, which is currently evolving in this region?
2: Well, and America's role in the Indo-Pacific and Australia's view of that has always been that uh, it is a benign, stable and very expansive military and diplomatic presence across the Indo-Pacific and we want it to be there. Australia has always... Strongly encouraged that, and also uh, uh, been very important role in um, working with the US in the ASEAN centered fora across the Asia Pacific and now in the Indian Ocean. Also, so what I saw when I first arrived, I'd been there before. Full disclosure, I have an American brother in law who was a naval aviator many years ago, and we went on family holiday there. Uh, but I, I, I uh, when I arrived in early 2018, uh, Harry Harris was the Indo-PACOM joint commander, the the the, um, uh, the top guy there. And it was thrilling to work with, with Harry for six months or
0: so. Um,
2: Jane, first- let me
0: just uh, jump in there to, to let you know that uh, Admiral Harris um, has joined today's webinar. Admiral Harris, very grateful to you uh, to be with us today.
2: Aloha, Harry. It's great to um, connect with you again. Harry was important to us in our perceptions of the not only the role of the Indo-Pacific Command, but of the broader US role and the way the US saw the Indo-Pacific at that time. Uh, Defatted, or the, really, the Prime Minister with the Foreign Minister and, the, and others had launched the um, the Indo the sorry the the. 2017 foreign policy white paper on the back of the 2016 defence white paper. That step change from 2016 to 2017 was quite notable already. If you look back at the 2017 white paper, the chapter on the Indo-Pacific was really starting to lay out Australia's broad vision for that for that region as a whole, and that coincided with um, others, uh, Japan invented. I think the, the the Japanese foreign minister invented the term "free and open Indo-Pacific." Harry Harris had played an incredible role in bringing it to attention. Had had RIMPAC, the largest uh, naval exercise in the world, in Honolulu, where he had invited uh, the PLA Navy, and um, in 2018 they were disinvited. Um, I mean, it was quite a, a significant year. Um, After that, I think Admiral Davidson, uh, a wonderful colleague also, he continued to create a very expansive view of the US military's role of Across the Indo-Pacific, which has culminated really in the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, which is before Congress and has a, a lot of, uh, it, it's hugely important for Australia, of course, that, that that developed that way. And Admiral Davidson's vision for a very expansive role for the US military ha- has now given way to, of course, the new commander, Admiral uh, da- Admiral. Chris Aquilino. And Admiral Aquilino similarly is building on the foundations created by Harry and then by Admiral Davidson. And he's now taking that forward. So what I saw during that time was a a huge um, increase in the US attention to um, what I call the periphery of the area of responsibility for Indo-PACOM, which is the south and the southwest Pacific, our our immediate neighbourhood, as well as across to the Indian Ocean. And, of course, um, as you all know, the development of the Quad and of Exercise Malabar, which will take place again soon, that has been a historic change. Uh, They're the main changes I've seen. I mean, I guess the other change is that the military has worked out and is still working out how to define its role in whole-of-government enterprise. The whole-of-government enterprise um, is something that's incredibly important in today's um, era because threats are of a different nature. And, again, I learned a great deal from Harry initially, and, of course, it developed over my three-and-a-half years in Honolulu, about the nature of those threats. It's no longer the traditional military engagement but military engagement is a hugely important part of collective deterrence going forward. Uh, so Americans call this the dime, um, diplomacy, information, military and economics. And I was always uh, reassured because Admiral Davidson, despite uh, calling out uh, China in many respects for their militarization, their activities and their coercive activities in our region, uh, he always said the M in Dime is a small M. This is a threat now or a, um, or a, uh, an environment, a broad environment, which, which needs military involvement, but the military is a small M. Diplomacy must lead. So that was a big change, I thought.
0: a that's a great point uh jane i think um, and particularly one that resonates um with the current debate um about the future of u.s indo-pacific strategy in in the biden administration of course we're now hearing um uh, a lot about a concept of integrated deterrence from secretary austin um which is a term i think both referring to the um, whole of government approach to deterrence and counter coercion in the region but also the increasing need for missing together um, uh, in a networked but integrated way, allies and partners, both in the region and externally, to contribute to a shared enterprise, um, 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 which we could characterize in, a, a, as being a shared enterprise for managing um, Chinese power and assertiveness in the region. Um, we might return to that in a moment, but at this point, Gordon, I'd like to turn to you as well as a frequent Visitor to uh, Camp Smith and uh, and the Hawaii-based think tanks. Um, how do you you know see the role of Indo-PACOM um, from your vantage point now in Western Australia?
1: Well, right now this conversation is making me miss Hawaii something fierce. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks to COVID, I haven't been in over two years. I think the last time I was there was in May of 2019, when then uh, what we call Ambassador Hardy kindly joined us for. Uh, 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 dialogue we did with the Pacific Forum, CSIS and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs looking at extended deterrence and views from South Korea and Japan and Australia on that. Um, in the 25 years I spent in Washington, D.C., Hawaii was always a very important meeting place you know, for those coming from Southeast Asia or East Asia and from the East Coast of the United States. Uh, and, and obviously the presence of the Indo-Pacific Command was a driving force behind it. We here often jokingly refer to the 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 Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Representative in Perth in Western Australia as the ambassador to Western Australia. But in, in a very real respect, uh, the Consul General in Honolulu serves as ambassador to the, the Indo-Pacific Command. And the reason that's important, and I think it's important for our viewers to understand is having spent 25 years in Washington, DC, I was acutely aware of the differences in perspectives that came out of Honolulu versus those that came out of the Pentagon. And that really was about geography, you know, where you sit influences where you stand. And the fact that the, the now Indo-Pacific Command uh, is in the region, uh, it means that they were much closer to many of the security issues in the region, the relationships in the region, and had a very, very important role for the United States, and thus, a very important role for Australia. And for us to be able to tie into that and understand that Um, And Australia obviously has had a remarkable degree of cooperation with the United States and, you know, to to the surprise probably of many of our listeners, a tremendous degree of integration with Australian officers serving, you know, all throughout the the hierarchy within the Indo-Pacific Command. uh, And it's something that kind of highlights the degree of of interoperability, but more importantly, kind of the closeness uh, between our two countries and how we view the region. Um, If I reflect back, um, you know, I obviously can't speak to the last two years, haven't been there. Um, um, But if I reflect back over the last, say, 30 years that I've been engaging with the Indo-Pacific Command, there really has been a noted shift. Uh, And it's a natural shift. Uh, You know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, any briefings that you would get in Camp Smith, we're really about the American role as a stabilizer in the region. You know, the, the, the security foundation upon which the prosperity of the region was grown, because we were very much focused on economic integration, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Initiative. And that was really built on the foundation of the security provided coordinated out of Indo-Pacific Command, but all the US alliance relationships in the region with Japan, with Australia, with Korea, with the Philippines, et cetera. Uh, in the last five years, uh, maybe even more than that, um, you know, there has been a market shift because obviously uh, there, there are warfighting responsibilities. Uh, and so if you get a briefing out of Indo-Pacific Command today, it will be I- I very different because it'll be focusing on threats in the region uh, and the fundamental responsibility of a, a military to prepare for those threats. And, and that is a shift and that's an undeniable shift But it's a shift based on changes on the ground in this region and in particular to the growing capabilities of china and the demonstrated um, willingness of china to use those capabilities in ways that are not necessarily in the interest with our partners in the region our allies in the region or in the region as a whole Uh, and so in that context there's no question that honolulu uh, the Indo-Pacific Command ha- has a higher importance than ever before and, and why we're so fortunate to have Ambassador Hardy here with us for this conversation today.
0: Yeah, those are really important points to, to make, Gordon. And, and of course, over that, that span that you were just discussing, the, the bigger pendulum with regards to the way that the US-Australia alliance has, has acted together, has fought together, has really been that, that shift from um, the wars in the Middle East, Afghanistan. Uh, the post 9-11 era, the the war in Iraq, um, um, now which are obviously drawing uh, finally to a close and the pendulum swimming therefore from focus on a policy and military sense um, with regards to CENTCOM, the combatant command responsible for U.S. operations in the Middle East, uh, to Indo-PACOM. And I think that that's something, you know, in in, in this somewhat shorter time, Gordon, that I've been visiting uh, Indo-PACOM that I've certainly uh, uh, picked up, that picked up most importantly here in Australia, which is the, the, you know, the, this, the, the um, important place that Indo-PACOM occupies, not just in military circles in Australia, but in whole of government circles in Australia. And there's a debate about the role that Indo-PACOM plays also as an ambassador of and an outgrowth of the US uh, defense enterprise in the region. I think there's an equally important point to make about that difference in perspective that you made, Gordon, um, of the warfighters in Indo-PACOM and their role, particularly as we look to the need to rebalance more broadly within the US defense enterprise budgeting, resourcing, posture, and, and another you know, critical enablers from the Middle East, or increase them in the Indo-Pacific area of command for shared alliance objectives. Um, th- that, I think, is a nice pivot, Jane, to come back to you, and to ask you maybe to zoom out a little bit from Indo-PACOM, um, and look at the Biden administration's approach to the Indo-Pacific more broadly at this point six months um, or just over six months into the administration. You know, in discussing this with, with you and others beforehand, of course, we've, we've thrown up a lot of continuities and a lot of changes, um, both with the Trump administration and, and with the Obama administration. Uh, where do you think um, the main um, continuities have been um, with the previous two administrations, and how would you characterise those for our audience today?
2: Well, I think that the continuity is very striking. Um, I was looking back at uh, the 20, 2018 National Defence Strategy of the US, which had uh, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis's, um fingerprints all over it. And it was, it it's still a very important document. In the meantime, the Biden administration has issued interim guidance, and for those who work on their iterative documents that roll out over quite some years, um, the, the National Security Statement, National Defense Strategy, um, they're very they're very transparent documents. Um, there are, of course, classified versions of them, but it's uh, a real. Um, I tip my hat to the Americans for. Um, practising what they preach and being open and very, very direct and transparent about their threat perceptions, their national interests through these sets of documents and what then feeds into that whole process over usually the course of several years, uh, the nuclear um, posture review and various other reviews, missile review and so on. <laughs> There's great continuity evident, I think, in the language of the Biden administration Uh, following on from um, Secretary um, uh, the language that he really established back in 2018, uh, I would point to a recent podcast by uh, Randall Shriver, who was um, a very important um, Trump administration official who had a strong military background and was able to, to really speak very coherently in the terms that we love to hear about U.S. presence, a benign, supportive presence in the Indo-Pacific. And I'd further say that the first uh, six months have seen a flurry of activity by uh, Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, uh, various other people, their deputies, um, and now with um, uh, advice that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris will be coming to the Asian region soon. Uh, That's very reassuring. One thing that we like to see from the US always is actual presence. Um, At the moment, the ASEAN-centred meetings are taking place virtually, and uh, Secretary Blinken is deeply involved, and he's put out a lot of publicity about that. Um, uh, Our Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, is engaging with him and with with the other uh, members of those dialogues. So this is important, show up. It is really important. For many years, um, Australia has worked with the ASEANs on building the regional architecture. Um, It was extremely important when the U.S., Joined in actually, um, they joined into APEC um, a few years after it had been initiated, and these things grow iteratively. But it is so reassuring to see very senior officials coming to the Asia region uh, in this first six months. Um, what what has come of that? Well, typically, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, Secretary Austin's visits to. Singapore and Vietnam and the Philippines, the significant thing that came out of that visit was the um, Visiting Forces Agreement and Enhanced Defence Cooperation Agreement between the US and the Philippines being refreshed and re-established in a way after some ups and downs over the last three years. So that was extremely reassuring because um, the way the US handles its... Um, I. I I'd call those the hub and spoke type arrangements, uh, are very significant. They're a deterrent signal in themselves. They are also a very practical thing. Um, These arrangements all lead to greater interoperability between our armed forces um, and also our regional diplomatic engagements. So uh, that's been very positive. Um, But there's not much to show for it yet. I'd say one of the most significant things that I took out of Secretary Austin's Fullerton lecture in Singapore recently, I think that was last week, was he he said that the US is willing to try and find a de-escalation mechanism with the People's Republic of China. Uh, This is a very significant signal. Um, So... I'm hopeful that that means that this administration is um, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk and trying to find ways to manage uh, relationships in this region and particularly um, its relationship with China.
0: Yeah, the relationship with China, Jane, not just for Australia, but for everyone in the Indo-Pacific and indeed globally is, of course, critical. I mean, at this point in the administration, I think it's fair to say that the Biden team have done a, a very good job in trying to thread the needle. On the one hand, they have maintained um, the a lot of the policy settings of strategic competition that were put in place by the Trump administration. Um, and of course, um, not all of those, but certainly um, um, many were indeed... Um, well received in the Indo-Pacific amongst uh, close US allies and partners that did want to see the US invest more um, more concertedly in effective strategic competition. And I think that's really the second point about the Biden team is that um, they've tried and they've prided themselves to date on trying to be more effective in prosecuting a, um, strategic competition, both in terms of the joining up of the bureaucracy and the working as closely as possible with allies and partners, which was, a, which was a different, um, uh, you know, which is a, which is a contrast to, the, to some of what the, the past administration did. Uh, but at the same time also striking that non-confrontational tone when it comes to China, which of course is so important in Southeast Asia when we look at the countries there and the nature of their economic and political ties to China and across the region. So at this point, Gordon, I would like to bring you back into the conversation here as our chief uh, Indo-Pacific watcher, out there from, uh, from Perth, um, how do you think uh, regional countries have assessed and, and appraised um, the Biden team's efforts in Southeast Asia, but of course, across the region to date?
1: Well, Ambassador Hardy is correct, uh, at least on paper, that there is remarkable continuity from the early strategic documents at the very beginning of, of the Trump administration and where the Biden administration is right now. And there's more continuity than change. But that's not true in terms of politics, in terms of public perception. Uh, And and it was a rocky four years. And and I think throughout the globe, uh, but in this region in particular, there was this collective sigh of relief uh, when Joe Biden was elected. Just because of the previous, not administration, but the previous president's open, almost hostility to alliances, his his inability to understand alliance relationships. And so you're hard pressed to find an alliance relationship that did better than the Australia-U.S. alliance during that period of time. Uh, But it wasn't easy by any means. Uh, Again, we have uh, Admiral Harris went on to be ambassador to Harris and did an incredible job under varying trying circumstances in the Republic of Korea, an important treaty ally with the United States where uh, the political overlay of that, you know, the focus on, on, on cost sharing or burden sharing and, 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 uh, and the overt political pressure in a, a democratic society was a really challenging thing, not to mention all the trade issues that, that impacted that in Japan and just how we framed or talked about alliances in general. Uh, look, uh, in foreign policy, there is no question that there is a utility for, for uncertainty. Right uh, and uncertainty can be very effective in dealing with adversaries, but uncertainty or our famed you know, unpredictability isn't very effective in dealing with alliances or allies. Uh, they want certainty. They want predictability. Uh, and I think the general sense is uh, that for the last six months we've got a, a return to predictability. We've got a return to 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 certainty in terms of we know that the adults are in the room and how they're carrying it out, and we know. That official documents and policies actually have weight, whereas by the end of the Trump administration, those strategic documents—I don't know anybody who believed them to actually, you know, represent thinking in the White House at that time. Now, the advantage is the Pentagon uh, of all the U.S. bureaucracies uh, really weathered the Trump era better than most, just because of its size and its strength, and the fact that. While most of the others rely so much on political appointees to keep them staffed and running, the Pentagon is is basically a government unto itself in terms of the capabilities. And they did a remarkable job on that front. But still, if you listen to General Miley's recent comments, a very difficult period of time for the region. Now, as to the last six months in particular, um, um, the, 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 the Biden administration has initially said all the right things. Um, it, it was really good to have those early visits to the region by Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin. Um, the the most recent tour by Secretary Austin, uh, including the the Fullerton Forum speech uh, in Singapore and his visit to 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 Vietnam, very importantly, and 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 uh, uh, the Philippines again highly well received uh, by all accounts. Kind of knocked the ball out of the park. Um, the thing that impresses me actually of their Indo-Pacific strategy is how responsive they have been. I think back just three months ago, at the, at the peak of the, the outbreak of COVID in India, um, there was a period of time where the US was caught flat-footed. You know, we had these Trump era bans on export of vaccines and other medical equipment to, to India, and there was no one catching the messaging. And so for about four or five days, the US was getting hammered for failing to respond when the rest of the world was, Uh, But they quickly caught on, rectified it, and I think that will now be forgotten. Similarly, uh, even two or three weeks ago, you could have made a case that that the Biden administration had ignored ASEAN, ignored Southeast Asia. Uh, And in the last week, with Secretary Blinken's meetings in Washington this week, with Secretary Austin's trips, uh, they really kind of rectified that. The one area where I would say there's still a big gaping hole is in the economic front. Uh, where you know economic leadership in the region, whether it is through free trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership or any other kind of infrastructure, uh, organization, standards, norms in that front, the U.S. has been largely silent. Now, in the context, the Biden administration's priorities, are, of course, have been COVID, COVID, COVID. And obviously, they're not past the, the line on that one yet, given what's going on today in the United States. So, again, there's a little bit of understanding for where they're at, but I would say that it remains for a true Indo-Pacific strategy. The diplomacy has gone very well. The security assurances have gone very well. But on the economic front, we're largely missing in action.
2: Can I chime in there? I I would like, that's a very interesting um, perspective, Gordon, and and I agree with much of it. I'd say if you look at the... um, the press releases coming out of the ASEAN meetings and the the press releases coming out of the Pacific Island Forum last month and so on, there are three Cs in those press releases. I call it the three Cs. It's COVID, climate and China. And they're the acute things before us. But if you look at the detail, um, there are some signals that, uh, and I think possibly when Vice President Harris comes to the region, this will um, manifest a little bit more more obviously, uh, that the the, the, uh, security concerns of our regional countries are to do with critical infrastructure, they're to do with uh, supply chains, they're to do with the COVID impact on all of those things. I was reading the other day that uh, the expected economic impact on Myanmar of the coup, um, was really it? It will be huge, uh, but it's also the impact of COVID. So that these things are all intermeshed. Uh, uh, anyway, we will continue to work on them. I'd also say, Japan is particularly important in, in the in this regard. Japan has had a tr- trillion, multi-trillion dollar uh, smart cities initiative for for some years, and has applied that to the Indo-Pacific specifically in the last three years. We've worked with Japan. I know Australian officials are working with them on critical infrastructure, um, joint projects of various kinds, electrification of the Papua New Guinea Highlands, you know, very significant uh, story. Our nearest geographical neighbour, a very close neighbour politically and economically, Papua New Guinea, 70% of the nation was not electrified. So this is a very significant effort. And the other thing I'd just say about economics is that typically it takes many years to set up important infrastructure projects. Uh, We see that domestically. You know, it takes five years from where to go, minimum. So they will, I believe manifest but i agree with you that the this will be a very significant long-term project that's still at early stages of development and if we can do things together uh, with the us uh, japan the koreans and other other very capable partners in our region it will knit us it will knit together the region in a more profound way than simply having a military presence with a hub-and-spoke sort of a set of relationships.
1: Can can I build on that and just add one thing which I failed to mention. It probably hasn't got as much attention as it should have. Very early in the Biden administration, on the 13th of March, the decision to hold a virtual leaders summit of the Quad, the Quadrilateral Dialogue, really was quite remarkable because in the end, messaging matters. Uh, And and most parties in the region are looking for messaging from the United States that it is committed to the region, that it will be supportive of alliances and the security infrastructure, but also that that it is not going to be the antagonist or the problem in the region. And so it's an interesting balance or an interesting tension that the U.S. always has to play in the region. And I thought that that quad uh, uh, leaders level meeting really struck it right they focused on a lot of issues climate change they focus on vaccines and vaccine deliveries on technology a very kind of forward-looking a- agenda for the region so our national leaders both in the u.s and, and in australia are often uh, at pains to make it clear that the quad is not the indo-pacific but it's just one of many strategies for the indo-pacific but my view is if you would review the decision of the, the Biden administration to elevate that to a leader's level and then to put out an agenda that was not strictly security focused. I think that goes a long way to what Ambassador Hardy was just talking about. Well, they're
0: they're great observations. I come at the issue a little bit differently. Um, uh, With regards to the Quad, there's no doubt that the elevation of the Quad to the leaders level um, is a significant achievement of the Biden administration. And going forward, that that will continue to be a really useful vehicle for prosecuting a range of strategic um, objectives that are shared by all four countries across the Indo-Pacific. And of course, the immediate response to COVID-19 and the vaccine effort by the Quad is first and foremost um, of that agenda. Uh, having said that, um, I think there are two points that flow from that. One is that um, you know expanding that court agenda to climate change, to critical technologies, um, a- as important as those issues are, does raise the question of whether or not it's the right organization to achieve that. And also whether it can actually achieve on those objectives, particularly when you look at the fact that they are not either of them, strictly regional issues. There are global organizations in place that are better suited to dealing with those issues. And at the same time, the question of of political and and, and diplomatic bandwidth um, has to also be asked, which is that if the quad's really important uh, sort of um, near-term agenda or objective is still in the maritime security domain, just how much can get done all at once. Um, Maybe that's um, an, 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 an insufficiently ambitious view from my part, but I do pick up concerns across the region around this sort of uh, horizontally expanding uh, quad agenda. Gordon, I think uh, I that, you wanting
1: to weigh in on that. Ash, that's spoken as as the the wonderful security specialist as you that you are. Right. I mean, so it was originally the quadrilateral security dialogue, uh, and, and but I'm actually much more of the mind that again the quad is not yet an organization. It is not an institution. There's no secretariat. Now, really, this is a coordination between the the four leaders uh, of Japan, India, Australia, and the United States. And if you look at the timing right after the election, all the anxiety, where the world was focusing, the notion that these four countries would cooperate together on those issues of shared concern was almost universally welcomed in the region. It was really good messaging at the moment for our partners in the Indo-Pacific. And so I get your perspective from, from a security specialist perspective. It would be, it has the potential of diluting the focus on the security side, but that doesn't always have to tap, happen at a summit level or leaders level in terms of the messaging. Yeah, no, that, that's an
0: important observation. And I think that that also pivots it to the second point that I wanted to make, which and to, and to bring it back to something you said, Jane, um, which is, um, there's the tone of what happens in the region and then there's the policy reality of it. And 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 again, some of the ideas that we've been looking at here at the US Study Center and in conjunction with you know colleagues and friends across the region is trying to assess, you know, really when push comes to shove, what's new in terms of regional policy so far as opposed to what is old becoming new again with regards to the way the administration is trying to rebuild some of the fractured relationships from the Trump years, trying to restart infrastructure initiatives, um, restart diplomatic initiatives in the region, even begin again the conversations around regional military posture, for example, in Southeast Asia and in particular in the Philippines. All of this this is welcome. Um, But when you look at it in terms of progress over, say, a six-year period, um, you do need to ask also how much of this is actually making progress in terms of regional strategy as opposed to being where we were in 2015. Jane, do you have some some comments on that front?
2: Sure. Well, um, just I think we're talking about slightly different things uh, in that, um, you know, Gordon mentioned there's no... Uh, No secretariat for the Quad, um, and that's by design, actually. Um, I was talking before about ASEAN and how we worked for for three decades to help ASEAN and to participate in the ASEAN-centred regional architecture. Um, I take your point, um, Ash. I mean, uh, military engagement is a very practical activity, and we've got to work out how we do that we do it in a benign way we do it in a reassuring way don't forget deterrence is assurance right so deterrence against potential adversaries is and should be assurance for allies and partners and i don't mean just in the uh, cold war um, sense of you know um, coming under the u.s nuclear umbrella or those traditional concepts of deterrence which are When when they mention integrated deterrence, if you look back historically, this is mentioned, but it's it's actually a um, a term that was about conventional um, capability, military capability, combining with uh, nuclear. Capability, we're well beyond that now. I mean, um, we're we're now in a world where I think the networked um, ideas which are emerging these are an ideas for networks. The Quad is really a network. It's not a hub and spoke organisation, and it doesn't have a it doesn't have a secretariat. It's not an edifice with very formal ways of working, but it's built on very very share, very closely shared interests. It's built on in shared culture, so the four countries, I don't mean culture in the sense of language necessarily or customs, uh, social customs, I mean uh, in uh, the culture of working internationally with each other through um, multilateral and bilateral means. This is all built up over many decades. Um, I, I, I'd point to ASEAN. We've, we've all learned a lot from ASEAN. ASEAN built... A very um, extensive regional architecture, which now is is well established. It's treaty based only in one sense, and that is the Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, which underpins the ASEAN Group, um, is something that uh, all the partners must uh, do, uh, sign into. But other than that, it's not a NATO-like structure. It's not a. It's a. It isn't. It, it it's a very also a very network structure with many um, elements of work which take place amongst officials of 21 nations around the uh, Indo-Pacific, including India. So um, I'd say that we've got to look more at the culture of the way we work and. Uh, uh, going back to the idea of a collective or integrated deterrence, I, I note that uh, Secretary Austin mentioned in his Fullerton lecture um, that, you know, this, this is using every tool in the toolbox, using partners and allies to come in together and create a networked way of operating. Now, whether the, whether this can be achieved or not, I, I'm not qualified to say, Uh, but it is the most significant question before us as we work out how we're going to carry forward deterrence in this day and age of grey zone activities. This is a good start. Um, I think, uh, Ash, your your excellent um, uh, written products on the Alliance and on OSMIN and so on point to the fact that we have a very deep alliance with the United States, but actually very few mechanisms to put it into practice. I think that's probably what you're alluding to. Uh, Osmin's coming up the next uh, two plus two. Um, I'm not involved in that, but um, I I would venture that there'll be some references to the, and, again, this is a point about continuity. This is very important to Australia. References to the Joint Force Posture Working Group that was established at last year's Osman, uh, and references to uh, the health initiatives, both Australia and the US, uh, at, um, playing important roles in rolling out vaccines to regional vulnerable countries. Very, very uh, good story to tell there, there you know, this, this will indicate the, the next step in what is always a very iterative process. You know, we look for the headlines and, and quite often they're not, they seem to be the same as, as what has occurred over several years. But actually, if you look down into the language, the way we express the direction we're taking this bilateral relationship mm. with the US, um, you'll see... Um, I think, some encouraging signs. Um, just getting back to integrated deterrence, I mean, there are some very important definitional issues to get to the bottom of here, because it's a term that um, Secretary Austin in particular, plus two of his deputies, have used at length. And I think there's a little bit of confusion about what it means. I mean, our military is quite integrated already with the US. When I was in Honolulu um over that three years, we went from about 39 to about 43 defence Australian defence personnel uniform and non-uniform embedded throughout the Indo-Pacific Joint Command and in all of the um, other component commands located in Honolulu. So we are we are very, very integrated. I think the key question is: will we be able to realize what Secretary Austin has held out as a promise or an idea? And that is that the US needs its allies and partners. It's the greatest um, benefit that the greatest advantage that it has um, in today's world, in the in, in in ensuring that it continues to be. You know the superpower of, um, of 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 support, not just to the region but the world, but focused on the Indo-Pacific. Um, can we actually achieve a networked form of interoperability, which is what I think he means by integrated deterrence? So uh, this will take quite some time, I think, to work this out.
0: Jane, thanks so much for um, you know going through the detail around integrated deterrence there for our listeners. I agree, this is a term we will all hear much more about. Um, uh, I want to pivot now to look at some of the questions that are being uh, um, handed to us from uh, our listeners. And we have a couple on China. So I'm going to direct the first of those to you, Gordon, and then come back to you, Jane, with the second. The first, Gordon, though, is to what extent will uh, US-China relations um, impact the Australian um, foreign policy, Australia's foreign policy rather going forward? And that's a question uh, we have from Professor Tadashi Kimami.
1: Well, as you might imagine, um, the, the given the economic relationship that Australia has with China, uh, the relationship between the US and China on security issues is front and center in our national debate here. Uh, nowhere more so than here in Western Australia, where at this point, 70% of our exports are going to a single market, and that is China, um, particularly our iron ore, our, our, our you know, LNG, a lot of the other resources. And, and that has just sharpened the debate. Something else has happened though, and, and over the last year and a half now, Australia has been the target of coercive economic activities uh, using trade and other levers on the part of China, um, and it has kind of fundamentally shifted the public debate. Whereas a year ago, a year and a half ago, there was this notion that there was a constant tension between Australia's economic interests and our security interests. And, and at this point, that debate has, has has shifted dramatically given the extremely overt and unignor- unignorable uh you know openness of the the, the Chinese actions. Um and, and so the US um Policy is going to be viewed in that light. I would note here uh, that that you know, I, if I reflect on the last five years, I find myself thinking, you know, we really dodged a bullet because you know, if, if China had had just a half-normal leader, not Xi Jinping, if they had had a continuation of Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin or something else, and they were playing their continual kind of just by you know, open diplomatic engagement during the Trump era they could have just made hay like you wouldn't believe, right? And the flip side is also true. If the United States had had kind of a half normal leader during the last five years of Xi Jinping, uh, we would be in such a better space globally in terms of our engagement with with the region. And instead, neither side uh, benefited from the last four years. Um, uh, I am greatly enheartened by the shift in tone and tenor coming out of Washington, DC. On the one hand, U.S. policy is arguably harder on China today under Biden than it was under Trump, because Trump was really all attitude and no strategy, you know, without the follow through to actually to do the hard things. And the Biden administration has largely kept, you know, the economic and other elements of that in place, uh, and they're putting them together with a strategy. The only thing is, going back to what I said earlier, messaging matters, uh, the United States this time has done so with, you know, the president himself coming out and saying alliance first and describing his foreign policy, uh, which is a sharp contrast to America first. Uh, and then again, as, 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 as Ambassador Hardy mentioned, a remarkable speech. And I would commend that to those of you who haven't read it yet. Just Google Secretary Austin 40th Fullerton forum speech for s Remarkable speech, where again, he focused a lot not on, on contention with China, but core principles. Uh, he, he focused heavily Uh, on on making sure that, you know, I think that the speech itself was titled The Power of Partnership. And so it's really all about how can we work together uh, with all the countries in the region? And I can guarantee you that has been a far more effective approach, even in the early days of it. So again, final point, you know, China is not an Australia issue. China is not a U.S. issue, given its size and its trajectory and its recent growth. China is a global issue you are really hard pressed to find a single country on the planet today that is not wrestling with the exact same questions. as about how to respond, how to deal with, and that even includes essential client states like Laos or Cambodia who are facing the same problems in terms of their own domestic politics. Um, and, and so to see the United States take a partnership-based approach to China uh, in, with very important partners like India or Australia, or, or, or Japan, I think is, is a welcome development. And I think it's probably largely welcomed globally, not just in the region. I couldn't and, and agree
0: more on the uh, China being a global challenge. Um, Jane, uh, did you want to jump in at this point?
2: I just wanted to add, um, it's been very heartening also to see our, European, our close European partners and allies very much focused on the Indo-Pacific understanding The significance of it globally and also for their own uh, core interests. Uh, You know, um, trade routes and so on through the Indian Ocean uh, are very important to our European partners. But but in addition to that, I think I've seen a huge change in their acknowledgement and understanding of what we're actually facing they also understand that they don't have to choose. They're, they're, we're all very, uh, you know, we all have China as a as, as significant, if not predominant, economic partner, and though that that intermeshing of economic and commercial activity between us is is very important. And I'm just of the old school that says that you know these um, economic relationships can actually are are a, are a positive factor which can drive positive outcomes for all of us so i mean i've I'm just struck by the number of european ships that have been in the south china sea in the last few weeks i think there have been at least three there have been well there have been two two british ships which will stay permanently in the region um, there, there was a dutch ship and there was a french ship um, and i may have missed out a german ship maybe um, and this is at a time not of rim you know the big the big uh, multilateral naval exercise. This is a time between <laughs> RIMPACs, mm. um, and I think that's very uh, heartening that those nations see their presence and understanding of of our immediate region is very important to their broader interests. And those interests, are, as I say, are specific. They're about relationships, economics, etc. But they're also about maintaining global order.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and ag- again, with that point that the China challenge does manifest itself uh, glo- globally, however, I'd, I'd probably diverge, and we won't have time to go into this uh, um, uh, on on the nature of the trade-offs, uh, regional versus global that both the US as well as um, our European friends need to make in order to, um, you know, at the end of the day, Um, align strategy with resources. And I think on that score, there needs to be quite a bit of of sorting and sifting uh, between the issue sets that are most appropriately dealt with, with global coalitions at a global level, as opposed to with regional coalitions at a regional level, certainly from the perspective of being able to rely on the nature of global contributions in a military sense in, in any substantial sort of regional contingency. Um, We don't have time to unpack all that because Jane, I want to turn to you again now with with a question from your old mate, uh, um, Admiral Harris, um, who's sent one through and fully endorsing your 3C construct as well. His question to you is another one on China, which is whether you could comment a little bit on the possibility that China might join the CPTPP in coming years.
2: Uh, that's a very interesting and important question. Uh, the CTPP was um, a, a, a huge development. I remember my colleagues in foreign affairs working furiously on it when um, the, uh, President Trump uh, decided to not or to leave. Um, the, the TPP which preceded it um, developed over many years And really, it's a really great example of a networked rather than hub and spoke international construct of huge significance. Uh, The countries involved, um, when I was in Washington back in 2005, we had decided to join, the US hadn't quite decided to join. We were all involved in um, discussing it and working out uh, our interests and And we were obviously very pleased the US joined, and Japan, it took a little while, Japan joined after that. Um, Whether China would join is a matter for the TPP or CTPP partners, because this is a networked organisation which must have, um, you know, everyone must have a say as to membership expansion. Uh, I I don't know if I if I were China and if I were in Beijing in the um, in the in the uh, government apparatus there, I would be really trying to sort out what are China's interests in this and joining it. And I would be very personally speaking, I'd be very positive about China joining because the TPP is a very sophisticated set of uh, trade relationships which include. Um, really, next generation economic issues for globally integrated advanced economies. It's not just ships going with widgets back and forth uh, between our countries. And all of our countries have very low tariff barriers, but it is the non tariff barriers, and most importantly in this day and age, the supply chains, which are driving the global economy. COVID has indicated some severe problems in supply chain um, setups around the world. So I think it would be, um, it's an issue for the for the membership, first and foremost. Uh, and, of course, there's the other question as, as, as to the US's interests in the CTPP now. Whether that's a change, I don't know, but I'd be very interested in, comments um from anyone who might know um, or have a view on what the us thinks
0: well well on that jane i'd like to turn to gordon and gordon this will probably be uh, the last comment of today given where we are for time i'd like to throw you the same question but also just just flag for our listeners that the perth center has done a lot of work on regional infrastructure competition, supply chain security, um, geoeconomics as well. The U.S. Study Center is also about to launch a series of reports on geoeconomics. Uh, But Gordon, this is obviously what lies behind that issue. And of course, at this point in time, again, for our listeners, the U.S. for the first time in, in a very long time is not a part of any major trade negotiation or or, or around new architecture in the Indo-Pacific. So could you give us your closing thoughts on on where what might be possible in the coming years?
1: Sure. And this obviously warrants uh, an entire other conversation. Uh, But the short answer is that the economic infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific is not purpose built for this era. You, you have the, the cooperative and progressive agreement on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP, where the United States is not in, but then neither is India and neither is in China. Then you have RCEP, the Regional Cooperative Economic Partnership, where India at the last minute dropped out is not in, and neither is the United States. And so neither RCEP nor the TPP could be considered to be Indo-Pacific Economic Architecture at this point. Um, and, and that's a real issue. Um, um, I, I do think that if you go back to the, my years in Washington, DC, from the very inception, American trade negotiators viewed the Trans-Pacific Partnership as an open architecture. And, and one of the reasons they were so hard in the negotiations early on with Vietnam, you know, another country that has to deal with similar challenges that China does with the role of state-owned enterprises, et cetera. They were so hard in the negotiations with Vietnam was precisely because there was a hope that whether it's RCEP or whether it's a Trans-Pacific Partnership, these would be stepping stones, two different paths, to a free trade agreement of the Asia-Pacific. You know, in, in lieu of kind of a complete stall of global free trade in, in negotiations, that we could do something in this very important and very vibrant region. Um, unfortunately, if I might answer uh, Jane's question, uh, despite every conversation I have with friends in Washington, me goading and poking them, uh, there is zero appetite on the part of the Biden administration right now to, to move forward on trade uh, negotiations. The closest we have to it is Catherine Tai, who is the US Trade Representative, is, is pushing for a new digital trade agreement, recognizing that many of the things negotiated a decade ago in the TPP have kind of been passed by, and so they're gonna focus on, on that first and foremost. I, I, I think that's a great thing. I just think it's, it's, it's just, you know, minuscule in comparison to what needs to happen. Uh, I would add, and I'll end up with this, um, I don't think either Japan or Australia get enough credit for what they did three years ago, when the, four years ago now, when the United States pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Myself and most people thought that it was a dead deal. Without the United States, there was no reason for the other countries like Vietnam and Malaysia to to sign up to it. And through some remarkable heavy lifting on the part of Japan and Australia, it was resurrected. It was kept alive. And it was part about keeping alive this notion of a rules-based order uh, and how we organize our economic activity. Uh, And the fact that the, the, the Biden administration has not yet got its internal act organized enough to figure out a way... To really join the only game in town uh, in terms of role in the region is, as I said at my in the outset, is the one remaining hole in the Biden administration: the lack of a compelling economic vision for the region and a, a compelling vehicle for American economic leadership in this region, which is so dependent on economics. And and I would add here, just to throw a little bit of security back into it, you may recall that former U.S. Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, referred to the Trans-Pacific Partnership of having the weight of a carrier battle group. Now, there Are real security implications to our economic policy? And that's worth throwing back in.
0: Now, Gordon, very important words to, to end today's discussion. And I think, you know, the key message um, being that there is no regional Indo-Pacific strategy without a regional trade strategy—that is the part that's missing. But the other part, um, the other takeaway from what you just said, is that you know middle powers of the region can get things done. And if it is important to Australia and Japan and others in the Indo-Pacific for the U.S. to be a resident leading power on economics and on trade as well as in security, then it it will fall to us to continue prosecuting that agenda um, in the lead up to Osmin for Australia and in the coming years for the rest of us in the Indo-Pacific. Gordon Flake, Jane Hardy, thank you both for joining us today for this uh, co-run US Study Center, Perth, US Asia Center monthly webinar. Um, I, I think all of our listeners will agree that today's discussion has been wide ranging detailed and, and very, very timely. So thank you both for that. And for the benefit of, um, of our viewers who are tracking um, our um, US Study Center activities going forward, I'd like to just mention that we'll have the Washington Post, Carol Lenig and Philip Rucker, who are authors of a new book in New York Times uh, bestseller, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald Trump and the Catastrophic Final Year, will join Simon Jackman and Bruce Woolpie for an in-person conversation on Wednesday the 18th of August. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Ashley Townsend at the US Study Centre and we wish you a very great rest of the week.